0: 12 chapters 15 to 30 of the spirit of the laws this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by benjamin gittens the spirit of the laws by charles de and baron de montesquieu translated by thomas nugent Book twelve. Of the laws that form political liberty in relation to the subject. Chapters fifteen to thirty. Chapter fifteen. Of the enfranchisement of slaves in order to accuse their master. Augustus made a law that the slaves of those who conspired against his person should be sold to the public that they might depose against their master. Nothing ought to be neglected which may contribute to the discovery of a heinous crime. It is natural, therefore, that in a government where there are slaves, they should be allowed to inform, but they ought not to be admitted as witnesses. Vindex discovered the conspiracy that had been formed in favour of Tarquin, but he was not admitted a witness against the children of Brutus. It was right to give liberty to a person who had rendered so great a service to his country, but it was not given him with a view of enabling him to render this service. Hence the emperor Tacitus ordained that slaves should not be admitted as witnesses against their masters, even in the case of high treason, a law which was not inserted in Justinian's compilation. Chapter 16 of calumny with regard to the crime of high treason. To do justice to the Caesars, they were not the first devisers of the horrid laws which they enacted. It was Scylla that taught them that calumniators ought not to be punished, but the abuse was soon carried to such an excess as to reward them. Chapter 17 of the revealing of conspiracies if thy brother the son of thy mother or thy son or thy daughter or the wife of thy bosom or thy friend which is as thine own soul entice thee secretly saying let us go and serve other gods thou shalt surely kill him thou shalt stone him this law of deuteronomy cannot be a civil law among most of the nations known to us, because it would pave the way for all manner of wickedness. No less severe is the law of several countries which commands the subjects, on pain of death, to disclose conspiracies in which they are not even so much as concerned. When such a law is established in a monarchical government, It is very proper it should be under some restrictions. It ought not to be applied in its full severity, save to the strongest cases of high treason. In those countries it is of the utmost importance not to confound the different degrees of this crime. In Japan, where the laws subvert every idea of human reason, the crime of concealment is applied even to the most ordinary cases. A certain relation makes mention of two young ladies, who were shut up for life in a box thick, set with pointed nails. One for having had a love intrigue, and the other for not disclosing it. Chapter 18. How dangerous it is, in republics, to be too severe in punishing the crime of high treason. As soon as a republic has compassed the destruction of those who want to subvert it, there should be an end of terrors, punishments, and even of rewards. Great punishments, and consequently great changes, cannot take place without investing some citizens with an exorbitant power. It is, therefore, more advisable in this case to exceed in lenity than in severity, to banish but few, rather than many, and to leave them their estates, instead of making a vast number of confiscations. Under pretense of avenging the Republic's cause, the avengers would establish tyranny. The business is not to destroy the rebel, but the rebellion they ought to return as quickly as possible into the usual track of government, in which everyone is protected by the laws, and no one injured. The Greeks set no bounds to the vengeance they took upon tyrants, or of those they suspected of tyranny. They put their children to death, nay, sometimes five of their nearest relatives, and they prescribed an infinite number of families by such means their republics suffered the most violent shocks exiles or the return of the exiled were always epics that indicated a change of the constitution the romans had more sense when cassius was put to death for having aimed at tyranny the question was proposed whether his children should undergo the same fate. But they were preserved. They, says Dionysus Helicarinusus, who wanted to change this law at the end of the Marison and Civil Wars, and to exclude from public offices the children of those who had been prescribed by Scylla, are very much to blame. We find in the wars of Marius and Scylla, to what excess the Romans had gradually carried their barbarity. Such scenes of cruelty, it was hoped, would never be revived. But under the triumvirs, they committed greater acts of oppression, though with some appearance of lenity, and it is provoking to see what sophisms they make use of to cover their inhumanity. Appian has given us the formula of the prescriptions, one would imagine they had no other aim than the good of the republic with such calmness do they express themselves such advantages do they point out to the state such expediency do they show in the means they adopt such security do they promise to the opulent such tranquillity to the poor so apprehensive do they seem of endangering the lives of the citizens so desirous of appeasing the soldiers, such felicity, in fine, do they presage to the commonwealth. Rome was drenched in blood, when Lepidus triumphed over Spain. Yet, by an unparalleled absurdity, he ordered public rejoicing in that city, upon pain of proscription. CHAPTER Nineteen, IN WHAT MANNER THE USE OF LIBERTY IS SUSPENDED IN A REPUBLIC? IN COUNTRIES WHERE LIBERTY IS MOST ESTEEMED, THERE ARE LAWS BY WHICH A SINGLE PERSON IS DEPRIVED OF IT, IN ORDER TO PRESERVE IT FOR THE WHOLE COMMUNITY. SUCH ARE IN ENGLAND WHAT THEY CALL BILL OF ATTAINDER. THESE ARE IN RELATION TO THOSE ATHENIAN LAWS, by which a private person was condemned provided they were made by the unanimous suffrage of 6000 citizens they are in relation also to those laws which made at rome against private citizens and were called privileges these were never passed except in the great meetings of the people but in what manner soever they were enacted Cicero was for having them abolished because the force of a law consists in being made for the whole community i must own notwithstanding that the practice of the freest nation that ever existed induces me to think there are cases in which a veil should be drawn for a while over liberty as it was customary to cover the statue of the gods chapter twenty of laws favourable to the liberty of the subject in a republic. In popular governments it often happens that accusations are carried on in public and every man is allowed to accuse whomsoever he pleases. This rendered it necessary to establish proper laws and in order to protect the innocence of the subject. At Athens if an accuser had not the fifth part of the votes on his side He was obliged to pay a fine of a thousand drachms. Achines, who accused Tessiphon, was condemned to pay this fine. At Rome, a false accuser was branded with infamy by marking the letter K on his forehead. Guards were also appointed to watch the accuser, in order to prevent his corrupting either the judges or the witnesses i have already taken notice of the athenian and roman law by which the party accused was allowed to withdraw before judgment was pronounced chapter twenty one of the cruelty of laws in respect to debtors in a republic great is the superiority which one fellow subject has already over another by lending him money which the latter borrows in order to spend, and, of course, has no longer in his possession. What must be the consequence if the laws of a republic make a further addition to this servitude and subjection? At Athens and Rome, it was at first permitted to sell such debtors as were insolvent. Solon redressed this abuse at Athens, by ordaining that no man's body should answer for his civil debts. But the decemvirs did not reform the same custom at Rome, and though they had Solon's regulation before their eyes, yet they did not choose to follow it. This is not the only passage of the Law of the Twelve Tables, in which the decemvirs show their design of checking the spirit of democracy. Often did those cruel laws against debtors throw the Roman Republic into danger. A man covered with wounds made his escape from his creditor's house, and appeared in the forum. The people were moved with this spectacle, and other citizens, whom their creditors dare no longer confine, broke loose from their dungeons. They had promises made them, which were all broken the people upon this having withdrawn to the sacred mount obtained not an abrogation of those laws but a magistrate to defend them thus they quitted a state of anarchy but were soon in danger of falling into tyranny manlius to render himself popular was going to set those citizens at liberty who by their inhuman creditors had been reduced to slavery Manlius' designs were prevented, but without remedying the evil. Particular laws facilitated to debtors the means of paying, and in the year of Rome 428, the consuls proposed a law which deprived creditors of the power of confining their debtors in their own houses. A usurer, by name Papyrus, attempted to corrupt the chastity of a young man named Publius, whom he kept in irons. Sextus's crime gave to Rome its political liberty. That of Papyrus gave it also the civil. Such was the fate of this city, that new crimes confirmed the liberty which those of a more ancient date had procured it. Appius's attempt upon Virginia flung the people again into that horror against tyrants, with which the misfortune of Lucretia had first inspired them. Thirty-seven years after the crime of the infamous Papyrus, an action of the like criminal nature was the cause of the people's retiring to the genital limb, and of giving new vigour to the law made for the safety of debtors. Since that time... Creditors were oftener prosecuted by debtors for having violated the laws against usury than the latter was sued for refusing to pay them. Chapter 22. Of Things That Strike at Liberty in Monarchies Liberty often has been weakened in monarchies by a thing of the least use in the world to the Prince. This is the naming of commissioners to try a private person. The Prince himself derives so very little advantage from these commissioners, that it is not worth while to change for their sake the common course of things. He is morally sure that he has more of the spirit of probity and justice than his commissioners, who think themselves sufficiently justified by his nomination and orders, by a vague interest of state, and even by their very apprehensions. Upon the arraigning of a peer under Henry the Eighth, it was customary to try him by a committee of the House of Lords, by which means he put to death as many peers as he pleased. Chapter twenty three of Spies and Monarchies should i be asked whether there is any necessity for spies in monarchies my answer would be that the usual practice of good princes is not to employ them when a man obeys the laws he has discharged his duty to his prince he ought at least to have his own house for an asylum and the rest of his conduct should be exempt from inquiry the trade of the spy might perhaps be tolerable were it practiced by honest men but the necessary infamy of the person is sufficient to make us judge of the infamy of the thing a prince ought to act towards his subjects with candour frankness and confidence He that has so much disquiet, suspicion, and fear, is an actor embarrassed in playing his part. When he finds that the laws are generally observed and respected, he may judge himself safe. The behaviour of the public answers for that of every individual. Let him not be afraid. He cannot imagine how natural it is for his people to love him. And how should they do otherwise than love him, since he is the source of almost all bounties and favours, punishments being generally charged to the account of the laws. He never shows himself to his people, but with a serene countenance. They have even a share of his glory, and they are protected by his power. A proof of his being beloved is that his subjects have confidence in him. What the minister refuses, they imagine the prince would have granted. Even under public calamities, they do not accuse his person. They are apt to complain of his being misinformed, or beset by corrupt men. Did the prince but know, say the people. These words are a kind of invocation, and a proof of the confidence they have in his person. Chapter 24 of Anonymous Letters The Tartars are obliged to put their names to their arrows, that the arm may be known which shoots them. When Philip of Macedon was wounded at the siege of a certain town, these words were found on the javelin. Aster has given this mortal wound to Philip. If they who accuse a person did it merely to serve the public they would not carry their complaint to the prince who may be easily prejudiced but to the magistrates who have rules that are formidable only to calumniators. but if they are unwilling to leave the laws open between them and the accused it is a presumption they have reason to be afraid of them and the least punishment they ought to suffer is not to be credited. No notice, therefore, should ever be taken of those letters, except in cases that admit not of the delays of the ordinary course of justice, and in which the Prince's welfare is concerned. Then it may be imagined that the accuser has made an effort which has untied his tongue. But in other cases one ought to say, with the emperor Constanatus, we cannot suspect a person who has wanted an accuser whilst he did not want an enemy chapter twenty five of the manner of governing in monarchies the royal authority is a spring that ought to move with the greatest freedom and ease the chinese boast Of one of their emperors who governed they say like the heavens that is by his example there are some cases in which a sovereign ought to exert the full extent of his power and others in which he should reduce it within narrower limits the sublimity of administration consists in knowing the proper degree of power which should be exerted on different occasions. The whole felicity of monarchies consists in the opinion which the subjects entertain of the lenity of the government. A weak minister is ever ready to remind us of our slavery. But granting, even that we are slaves, he should endeavour to conceal our misery from us. All he can say or write is that the prince is uneasy, that he is surprised, and that he will redress all grievances. There is a certain ease in commanding. The prince ought only to encourage, and let the laws menace. Chapter 26 That in a monarchy the prince ought to be of easy access. The utility of this maxim will appear from the inconvenience attending the contrary practice the Caesar Peter one says the seer Perry has presented an edict by which he forbids any of his subjects to offer him a petition till after having presented it to two of his officers. in case of refusal of justice they may present him a third but upon pain of death if they are in the wrong after this no one ever presumed to offer a petition to the Caesar. chapter 27 of the manners of a monarch the manners of a prince contribute as much as the laws themselves to liberty like these he may transform men into brutes and brutes into men If he prefers free and generous spirits, he will have subjects. If he likes base, dastardly souls, he will have slaves. Would he know the great art of ruling? Let him call honour and virtue to attend his person, and let him encourage personal merit. He may even sometimes cast an eye on talents and abilities. Let him not be afraid of those rivals who are called men of merit. He is their equal when once he loves them. Let him gain the hearts of his people without subduing their spirits. Let him render himself popular. He ought to be pleased with the affections of the lowest of his subjects, for they too are men. The common people require so very little condescension that it is fit they should be humoured the infinite distance between the sovereign and them will surely prevent them from giving him any uneasiness let him be exorable to supplication and resolute against demands let him be sensible in fine that his people have his refusals while his courtiers enjoy his favours Chapter twenty eight of the regard which monarchs owe to their subjects. Princes ought to be extremely circumspect with regard to raillery. It pleases with moderation because it is an introduction to familiarity, but a satirical raillery is less excusable in them than in the meanest of their subjects for it is they alone that give a mortal wound much less should they offer a public affront to any of their subjects kings were instituted to pardon and to punish but never to insult when they affront their subjects their treatment is more cruel than that of the Turk or of the Muscovite the insults of these are a humiliation not a disgrace, but both must follow from the insolent behaviour of monarchs. Such is the prejudice of the eastern nations, that they look upon an affront from the prince, as the effect of a paternal goodness. And such, on the contrary, is our way of thinking, that besides the cruel vexation of being affronted, we despair of ever being able to wipe off the disgrace. Princes ought to be overjoyed to have subjects to whom honour is dearer than life, an incitement to fidelity as well as to courage. They should remember the misfortunes that have happened to sovereigns for insulting their subjects. The revenge of Cheria, of the eunuch Narsus, of Count Julian, and, in fine, of the Duchess of Montpensier, who... Being enraged against Henry the third for having published some of her private failings Tormented him during her whole life Chapter 29 of the civil laws proper for mixing some portion of Liberty in a despotic government Though despotic governments are of their own nature everywhere the same Yet from circumstances, from a religious opinion, from prejudice, from received examples, from a particular turn of mind, from manners or morals, it is possible they may admit of a considerable difference. It is useful that some particular notions should be established in those governments. Thus in China, the prince is considered as the father of his people, and at the commencement of the Empire of the Arabs, the prince was their preacher. It is proper there should be some sacred book to serve for a rule, as the Koran among the Arabs, the books of Zoroastro among the Persians, the Veda among the Indians, and the classic books among the Chinese. The religious code supplies the civil, and fixes the extent of arbitrary sway it is not at all amiss that in dubious cases the judges should consult the ministers of religion thus in turkey the caddis consult the mullahs. but if it is a capital crime it may be proper for the particular judge if such there be to take the governor's advice to the end that the civil and ecclesiastical power may be tempered also by the political authority. Chapter 30 The Same Subject Continued Nothing but the very excess and rage of despotic power ordained that the father's disgrace should drag after it that of his wife and children. They are wretched enough already without being criminals. Besides, the prince ought to leave suppliants or mediators between himself and the accused to assuage his wrath or to inform his justice. It is an excellent custom of the Maldavians that when a lord is disgraced, he goes every day to pay his court to the king till he is taken again into favor. His presence disarms the prince's indignation. In some despotic governments, they have a notion that it is trespassing against the respect due to their prince to speak to him in favour of a person in disgrace these princes seem to use all their endeavours to deprive themselves of the virtue of clemency arcadius and honorius by a law on which we have already descanted positively declare that they will show no favour to those who shall presume to petition them in behalf of the guilty this was a very bad law indeed since it is bad even under a despotic government the custom of persia which permits every man that pleases to leave the kingdom is excellent and though the contrary practice derives its origin from despotic power which is ever considered the subject as slaves and those who quit the country as fugitives. Yet, the Persian practice is useful even to a despotic government, because the apprehension of people's withdrawing for debt restrains or moderates the oppressions of pashas and extortioners. End of chapter 30 End of book 12